Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to Episode 90 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about werewolves. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Even a man who is pure in heart and says his prayers by night may become a wolf when the wolfbane blooms and the autumn moon is bright. So says the 1941 Lon Chaney movie, The Wolfman. People have believed in werewolves since time immemorial, and there are countless tales of human beings transforming into wolves, either physically or in terms of their behavior. But what do we know about these accounts? Can humans really transform into wolves? If not, where do we get the stories and what elements of truth might they contain? And that's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, where does the term werewolf come from? The contemporary English term werewolf comes from the old English term werewolf. It has two parts, were and wolf. The second part is obvious. Wolf means wolf. It's the first part that we need to clarify. What does were mean? English is derived from an original language that scholars call Indo-European because it was used by people who spread into India and Europe. It's the original basis of languages like English, but it's also the basis of other languages like Latin. And in Indo-European, the word wero meant man. And you can hear how wero came down into the Latin term vir, which also means man. And it came down into the English form wera, which means the same thing. So a wera wolf is a man wolf a man who takes the form of or acts like a wolf. The same idea is found in other languages. For example, a Greek-based term for werewolf is lycanthrope. In Greek, leukos means wolf and anthropos means man. So a leukos anthropos or lycanthrope means a wolf man. So how far back in human history does belief in werewolves go? It's not possible to tell, and it may be as old as the human race itself. Humans and wolves grew up together. Uh, Our distant ancestors and theirs co-evolved starting millions of years ago. Anatomically modern humans appeared about 300,000 years ago, and the modern wolf, Canis lupus, appeared around the same time. Back then, humans and wolves would have been competitors for food, which was scarce, So we grew up regarding each other with suspicion and as dangerous rivals. Then, about 50,000 years ago, behaviorally modern humans appeared. Uh, These humans had more advanced tools and rituals and networks for long-distance barter and trade. And that happened during the last Ice Age. About 15,000 years ago, just before the Ice Age ended we started domesticating a group of wolves and turning them into man's best friend, the dog, or Canis familiaris. Dogs became our new best buddies, but there were still lots of wild, untamed wolves out there, and these continued to be regarded with hostility. Not only did they prey on our livestock, which we were also now domesticating, the fact that they hunted in packs meant that they would occasionally attack lone humans. Friction between wolves and humans continued right up into recent centuries. That's why Jesus used the metaphor of wolves in sheep's clothing for deceptive religious leaders. And if you read European literature right up into the 1800s, you find all kinds of depictions of wolves as cruel, predatory beings. It was only in the 20th century, once humans were making a superabundance of food and had achieved dominance over the environment, that you started getting these modern, warm, fuzzy depictions of wolves that you'll see in some environmentalist literature. You know, now that wolves were no longer a serious threat to humans, now that we'd won the competition, we could take a more charitable attitude towards them and appreciate various things about them that 
previously, you know, you don't always appreciate if you're in intense competition with somebody. But for all of previous human history, wolves were dangerous competitors. Of course, humans admire anything dangerous, so you'd have tribes of humans taking wolves as their totem animals. You'd also have human warriors dressing in wolf skins to intimidate their enemies and magically take on the powers of the wolf. So it's no surprise that you'd get legends of men who transformed into wolves. In my view, the werewolf legend probably goes back well into prehistory, though obviously we can't document it because we don't have written records. That's what makes history is the written records. So when do written records of werewolf accounts appear? Back in classical antiquity, for example, in the 400s BC, the father of history, Herodotus, the Greek author and tourist, wrote about a tribe of people called the Nuri who lived near the Scythians in what is modern Ukraine or Belarus. He said, It may be that they are wizards, for the Scythians and the Greeks settled in Scythia say that once a year, every one of the Nuri is turned into a wolf and after remaining so for a few days, returns again to his former shape. For myself, I cannot believe this tale, but they tell it nevertheless, yea, and swear to its truth. In the first century BC, the Roman poet Virgil wrote about a guy named Moerus, who was from Pontus on the shore of the Black Sea in Turkey. And Moerus could deliberately change into a wolf. Virgil has the character Alpha Siboes say, These herbs and these poisons, culled in Pontus, Moirist himself gave me. They grow plenteously in Pontus. By their aid I have oft seen Moirist turn wolf and hide in the wolf woods, oft call spirits from the depth of the grave, and charm sown corn away to other fields. At the beginning of the first century AD, another Roman poet, Ovid, who lived in the reign of Augustus, also recounted how a man named Lycaon of Arcadia was turned into a wolf by Zeus. He recounts how when Zeus visited Arcadia, which is in Greece, the pious worshipped him, but Lycaon mocked them and committed a great crime to see whether or not Zeus was really a god. Ovid has Zeus saying, Lycaon mocked their pious vows and scoffing said, A fair experiment will prove the truth if this be god or man. And he prepared to slay me in the night, to end my slumbers in the sleep of death. So made he merry with his impious proof. But not content with this, he cut the throat of a Molossian hostage sent to him, and partly softened his still quivering limbs in boiling water, partly roasted them on fires that burned beneath. And when this flesh was served to me on tables, I destroyed his dwelling and his worthless household gods with thunderbolts avenging. Terror struck, he took to flight, and on the silent plains is howling in his vain attempts to speak. He raves and rages in his greedy jaws, desiring their accustomed slaughter, turn against the sheep, still eager for their blood. His vesture separates in shaggy hair, his arms are changed to legs, and as a wolf he has the same gray locks, the same hard face, the same bright eyes, the same ferocious look. Later in the first century, the Roman naturalist Pliny the Elder, who died in AD 79 when he tried to study the eruption of Mount Vesuvius and got a little too close, was skeptical about the existence of werewolves, but he acknowledged that there was widespread belief in them. We are bound to pronounce with confidence that the story of men being turned into wolves and restored to themselves again is false, or else we must believe all the tales that the experience of so many centuries has taught us to be fabulous. Nevertheless, we will indicate the origin of the popular belief, which is so firmly rooted that it classes werewolves among persons under a curse. Evanthes, who holds no contemptible position among the authors of Greece, writes that the Arcadians have a tradition that someone chosen out of the clan of a certain Anthus, by casting lots among the family, is taken to a certain marsh in that region, and hanging his clothes on an oak tree, swims across the water and goes away into a desolate place and is transformed into a wolf and herds with the others of the same kind for nine years, and that if in that period he has refrained from touching a human being, he returns to the same marsh, swims across it, and recovers his shape, with nine years' age added to his former appearance. Avanthes also adds the more fabulous detail 
that he gets back the same clothes. <laughs> <laughs> it is astounding to what lengths Greek credulity will go. There is no lie so shameless as to lack a supporter. Similarly, Apollos, the author of Olympic Victors, relates that at the sacrifice which even at that date the Arcadians used to perform in honor of Lycaon Jove with a human victim, Demenetus of Parasia tasted the vitals of a boy who had been offered as a victim and turned himself into a wolf, and furthermore, that he was restored ten years later and trained himself in athletics or boxing and returned a winner from Olympia. So the legend of the werewolf was well established in the classical world, although the details varied. In some cases, people got transformed into the wolves by the gods because they committed some great crime. In other cases, it seemed to be part of a magic ritual they were performing on themselves. And in some cases, it was part of a tribal ritual and may have affected the whole tribe. How did werewolf accounts change once we're in the Christian era? It looks like werewolf legends, at least in Europe, went into a decline during the period of Christianization. Early Christians discounted the stuff in pagan literature and were more focused on the Bible, which doesn't have any accounts of werewolfism. Although, there is an interesting parallel case we'll talk about in the faith perspective. But then, in the Middle Ages, there started to be a resurgence of werewolf accounts. According to Wikipedia... There was no widespread belief in werewolves in medieval Europe before the 14th century. There were some examples of man-wolf transformations in the court literature of the time. Lutprand of Cremona reports a rumor that Bajan, son of Simeon I of Bulgaria, could use magic to turn himself into a wolf. Marie de France's poem, Bisclarvret, in which the nobleman Bazuna, for reasons not described, had to transform into a wolf every week. When his treacherous wife stole his clothing needed to restore his human form, he escaped the king's wolf hunt by imploring the king for mercy and accompanied the king thereafter. His behavior at court was so much gentler than when his wife and her new husband appeared at court that his hateful attack on the couple was deemed justly motivated and the truth was revealed. The German word Werwolf is recorded by Bertrand von Worms in the 11th century and by Bertold of Regensburg in the 13th but is not recorded in all of medieval German poetry or fiction. References to werewolves are also rare in England, presumably because whatever significance the wolfmen of Germanic paganism had carried, the associated beliefs and practices had been successfully repressed after Christianization, or if they persisted, they did so outside the sphere of literacy available to us. The Germanic pagan traditions associated with wolfmen persisted longest in the Scandinavian Viking Age, Harold I of Norway is known to have had a body of Ulfednar, wolf-coated men, which are mentioned in various Scandinavian sagas and resemble some werewolf legends. The Ulfednar were fighters similar to the berserkers, though they dressed in wolf hides rather than those of bears, and were reputed to channel the spirits of these animals to enhance effectiveness in battle. These warriors were resistant to pain and killed viciously in battle, much like wild animals. Ulfednar and Berserkers are closely associated with the Norse god Odin. The Scandinavian traditions of this period may have spread to Kievan Rus, giving rise to the Slavic werewolf tales. The 11th century Belarusian prince Vislav, Vislav of Polotsk was considered to have been a werewolf capable of moving at superhuman speeds, as recounted in the tale of Igor's campaign. Vislav, the prince judged men, as prince, he ruled towns, but at night he prowled in the guise of a wolf. From Kiev prowling, he reached before the cock's crow, Timuturokin. <laughs> the path of the great sun as a wolf prowling, he crossed. For him in Polotsk, they rang for matins early at St. Sophia, the bells. But he heard the ringing in Kiev. So you have rumors that a prince is going out at night and behaving like a wolf. So keep that in mind. Prince getting up to no good at night. Also, you had the reemerging werewolf legend accounts taking on different shapes in different parts of Europe. I don't mean the werewolves were taking on different shapes, but the legends or stories about them did. The situation as described during the medieval period gives rise to the dual form of werewolf folklore in early modern Europe. On one hand, the Germanic werewolf, which becomes associated with the witchcraft panic from around 1400, and on the other hand, the Slavic werewolf, or 
Vulkolak. Vulkolak, these words, which becomes associated with the concept of the revenant or vampire. The eastern werewolf vampire is found in the folklore of Central and Eastern Europe, including Hungary, Romania, and the Balkans, while the western werewolf sorcerer is found in France, German-speaking Europe, and in the Baltic. So in some parts of Europe, you had werewolves associated with witches or sorcerers, but in other parts, you have them associated with vampires. How did the Europeans deal with all these reported werewolves? Oh, they did what civilized people would do with any perceived threat to their communities. They locked them up and put them on trial. (laughs) Notice how civilized this is. They didn't just form lynch mobs and dispense vigilante justice. They may have done that, too. But sometimes, you know, they also let the judicial system take its course. And however imperfect the judicial system was or is, people accused of being werewolves were not automatically found guilty. Wikipedia notes. There were numerous reports of werewolf attacks and consequent court trials in 16th century France. In some of the cases, there was clear evidence against the accused of murder and cannibalism, but none of association with wolves. In other cases, people have been terrified by such creatures, such as that of Gilles Garnier in Dole in 1573. There was clear evidence against some wolf, but none against the accused. So, you know, think about the implications of that. Sometimes they found evidence that a guy was a killer and a cannibal, but not that he was a werewolf. They didn't convict him of being a werewolf. Other times they had evidence that there was a wolf that was responsible for the attack, but not that that wolf also turned into a human who was accused of being a werewolf. So, you know, they're being quite discriminating here. Go early modern justice system. (laughs) Werewolvery was a common accusation in witch trials throughout their history, and it featured even in the Valet witch trials, one of the earliest such trials altogether, in the first half of the 15th century. Likewise, in the Vaud, child-eating werewolves were reported as early as 1448. A peak of attention to lycanthropy came in the late 16th to early 17th century as part of the European witch hunts. A number of treatises on werewolves were written in France during 1595 and 1615. Werewolves were cited in 1598 in Anjou, and a teenage werewolf, not Michael Landon apparently, sorry, was sentenced to life imprisonment in Bordeaux in 1603. Henry Beaujou wrote a lengthy chapter about werewolves in 1602. In the Vaud, werewolves were convicted in 1602 and in 1624. So sometimes werewolves were convicted. As they say in the legal system, you win some, you lose some. But there was increasing skepticism about werewolves, particularly among the educated, meaning the clergy and the nobility. A treatise by a Vaud pastor in 1653, however, argued that lycanthropy was purely an illusion. After this, the only further record from the Vaud dates to 1670. It is that of a boy who claimed he and his mother could change themselves into wolves, which was, however, not taken seriously. At the beginning of the 17th century, witchcraft was prosecuted by James I of England, who regarded warwolfes as victims of delusion induced by a natural superabundance of melancholic. And that was one of the four humors that was thought to regulate the human body. And so King James I of England, this is the King James Bible guy, who was featured in the Doctor Who episode, The Witchfinders, didn't believe in literal werewolves and thought the accused people were just suffering from mental illness. After 1650, belief in lycanthropy had mostly disappeared from French-speaking Europe, as evidenced in Diderot's encyclopedia, which attributed reports of lycanthropy to a disorder of the brain, although there were continuing reports of extraordinary wolf-like beasts, but not werewolves. One such report concerned concerned the Beast of Givauden, which terrorized south-central France from the years 1764 to 1767. It killed upwards of 80 men, women, and children. The only part of Europe which showed vigorous interest in werewolves after 1650 was the Holy Roman Empire, so basically Germany, Austria, Czechoslovakia, etc. At least nine works on lycanthropy were printed in Germany between 1649 and 1679. In the Austrian and Bavarian Alps, belief in werewolves persisted well into the 18th century. And that takes us down to today, where 
people largely do not believe in human beings literally turning into wolves or wolf-human hybrids. But as part of cryptozoology, you do get reports of extraordinary wolf-like creatures, like the Michigan Dogman, who we might talk about in a future episode. All right. So uh, that uh, concludes the introductory material. We'll get right to theories in a second. But uh, first, I want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including this time Father Jeff, Mary B., Zipporah T., Tim S., and Tay M. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. So, Jimmy, what theories are there about werewolves? They fall into three general categories. The first would hold that lycanthropy is real, that people are somehow physically transforming into wolves or wolf-human hybrids. The second would hold that this is all nonsense. It's all just rumors and legends with no basis in reality. And then the third is a middle position, that people aren't really transforming into wolves or wolf-human hybrids, but the legends do have a basis of some kind. And this last category has several subcategories that deal with the basis of the legend. They might be rooted in cultural practices, in individual behaviors, in mental conditions, or in physical conditions. Uh, in each of these cases, there would be something real that gave rise to werewolf reports, but the folk process to one degree or another then misinterpreted what was happening and read it as, as if it was literal werewolfism. What can we say about werewolves from the faith perspective? If you want to propose that real transformations into wolves or wolf-human hybrids have taken place, this would be the heading under which to consider that, unless you want to bring in aliens. After all, there is no natural way to transform an adult human, even partially, into a wolf. We don't have the technology to do that, though advanced gene editing technology might one day make it possible. And notice that in the ancient literature, people indeed saw the transformations as supernatural. In some cases, the gods, like Zeus, would turn people into werewolves. In other cases, people would use a magic ritual to turn into wolves. And that even applied to the guy Virgil described, Moerus of Pontus, who used herbs and poisons to turn himself into a wolf. To us, that sounds like a pharmacological procedure, you know, something you use drugs to do. But in the ancient Greek-speaking world, pharmakeia, from which we get the word pharmacy, was considered magic. And note that Virgil has Moerus practicing other magic rites, like necromancy, you know, he's calling up spirits, and magically transporting crops from one field to another. So turning into a wolf was just part of Moerus's magical abilities. All right, yeah, so, but we're Christians, so what would the perspective of Christian faith say about this? From a Christian point of view, the supernatural is real, and it's divided into two realms. On the one hand, you have God and his angels, and on the other hand, you have demons or fallen angels. So if people were going to be supernaturally transformed in their bodies, it would have to be caused by one of these two sources. Could God transform someone into a wolf or a wolf-human hybrid? God is omnipotent, so he can actualize any logically possible state of affairs. That is, any state of affairs that doesn't involve a contradiction in terms, like square circle or four-sided triangle. It thus would be within God's power to rearrange the molecules of a person's body so that they took on the form of a wolf or became more wolf-like. By extension, God also might give the power needed to do this to his angels, who might then carry out the procedure. So God has the kind of power uh, needed to do this transformation. It's just rearranging stuff that exists. And the question is whether we have any evidence he actually ever does this. What evidence do we have? I'm aware of one proposed case that some have interpreted as an instance of divinely induced werewolfism. In Daniel chapter 4, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar has a dream or vision in which a watcher comes down from heaven. Now, just a few episodes ago, back in episode 87, we talked about the watchers and their connection to the Nephilim, 
Uh, basically, watchers are angelic beings. So a watcher comes down from heaven and says this. Let him, Nebuchadnezzar, be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his lot be with the beasts and the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven times pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Daniel then interprets the dream and tells Nebuchadnezzar that this is going to happen to him to show him that God, not he, is ultimately in charge. Daniel urges Nebuchadnezzar to stop sinning so the judgment may be delayed, but the king doesn't. A year later, he's arrogantly boasting about how he has built things in Babylon by his mighty power, and so the judgment falls on him. Immediately the word was fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. But after seven years, the judgment passes, Nebuchadnezzar's reason comes back, and he regains the throne and praises God, who he now realizes is ultimately in charge, so he needs to be humble. But it doesn't sound like Nebuchadnezzar actually became a werewolf. No, it doesn't. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar does, does leave human society and throw off his clothes so that his body is wet with dew. He grows long hair and lets his fingernails grow so they look like claws. But he doesn't take up the dining habits of a wolf. In fact, the text specifically says he eats grass like an ox, not that he preys on sheep or humans. There's also no mention of wolves in the text. This looks more like a case of mental illness that causes a person to result to a feral state, which is something we'll talk about in the reason section. So it's like he has a psychotic break and leaves society and lives in this wild state. But that's it. He's not a wolf. What about the other supernatural source? Could demons turn someone into a werewolf? That's what many Christians who believed in werewolves logically inferred. Uh, since werewolves harmed the community while in their wolf form, they had evil effects on the community. And so they were seen as being produced by the devil. That's why werewolves were associated with witches and vampires, harmful people that were in some way connected with the devil. A werewolf thus might voluntarily transform or involuntarily if he was under a curse. But either way, it was bad news, and that meant the devil was involved. But would the devil and his agents really have the power to do this? That's the question. God could supply a good angel with all the power it needs to rearrange the molecules of a human body. But without a special endowment, that power to do this would have to be intrinsic to the nature of an angel, since God presumably doesn't give special endowments to fallen angels. In this regard, we find the church father, St. Augustine, writing in the early 400s in his book, The City of God, about whether demons would have the power to literally transform the bodies of men. He says, When I myself was in Italy, I used to hear such tales in connection with a certain district where the women innkeepers were imbued with magic arts and would give to such wayfarers as they could and snare a kind of cheese, concealing something that at once changed them into beasts of burden. Only when they transported whatever the landladies needed would they come to themselves. Meanwhile, I was told, they were not mentally reduced to the level of beasts, but continued in full possession of their human rationality, as was the case, real or imagined, of Apuleius, who in The Golden Ass tells how he drank poison and was turned into an ass, preserving throughout his ex experience his rational powers. Now such phenomena either are either too unfounded in fact or too far beyond general experience to deserve belief. Nevertheless, what must be unshakably believed is that Almighty God, whether to bless or to punish, can do whatsoever he wills. Further, that demons have no powers by nature, angelic by creation, and malignant only by corruption, except what he, God, allows, whose judgments are often hidden but never unholy. Certainly, demons cannot create substances. The most they can do, if they do any of the things we are discussing, is to make, in appearance only, one of the creatures of the true God look like something different. Hence, on no account would I believe that demonic art or power can really change a man's body, much less his mind, into the body and shape of any beast. 
It may be, however, that the imagination of a man, which even as he thinks or dreams, covers a countless variety of things, and although incorporeal, takes hold with astounding swiftness on quasi-corporeal semblances, may, when the man's external senses are dulled by sleep or artificially overwhelmed, be presented inexplicably in corporeal form to the external senses of another person. So Augustine doesn't give any credence to the claims that witches could transform men into wear-asses, you know, beasts of burden. He thinks that demons don't have the ability to literally transform bodies, but he's trying to be open and say, well, what could they do along these lines? And he thinks that they might be able to use their powers to create an illusion in human senses, because he knows humans are subject to illusions, like when we're dreaming. Now, if you look online and in books, you will find an, a quotation attributed to St. Thomas Aquinas, who wrote in the 1200s, suggesting that angels do have the power to transform our bodies. In fact, you'll find, unless it's been removed, you'll find it on Wikipedia's page on werewolves. But as we're going to see, the quotation is problematic. So this is a case where Wikipedia, like other encyclopedias, has problematic information. Here's the version you'll find on Wikipedia. All angels, good and bad, have the power of transmutating our bodies. Now, that doesn't mention werewolves, but it does sound like he's saying angels, including demons, have the power of transforming our bodies, and that would, you know, include into a wolf-like form. As part of my research, I went looking for this quotation in Aquinas's writings, and it comes from his commentary on Peter Lombard's sentences. Peter Lombard was a famous medieval theologian. He wrote a work called The Sentences. Other theologians then wrote commentaries on it. And if you want to look up this quotation, it's in Aquinas's commentary in Book 2, Distinction 8, Question 1, Article 5, in the Solutio, on page 215 of the online PDF we'll have a link to, so you can read it in the original Latin for yourself. Problem is, if you read it in context, Aquinas is not saying that demons can change our bodies into those of animals. I won't go into all the details why, uh, but I will point you to another work by Aquinas, De Malo, or On Evil, and specifically this is question 16, article 9, reply 2 of De Malo, uh, where he specifically denies that demons can change our bodies into those of animals. He says, Devils can produce certain things beyond the power of natural causes by means of the natural causes that they use to produce the effects, but not that the features of the human body be really turned into the features of a beast, since this is contrary to the ordination of nature implanted by God. Rather, imaginary apparitions rather than real things accounted for the aforementioned transformations, as Augustine says in the cited work. So Aquinas agrees with Augustine. He specifically denies that demons can transform human bodies into those of a beast, meaning he rules out literal werewolfism. But he would leave the door open to demonic illusions that make people look like wolves or think they're wolves. Whether such illusions actually happen, though, will depend on whether there are credible sightings of such transformations, and I'm not aware of any. All right, so that's the faith perspective. What can we say about werewolves from the reason perspective? Yeah. Oh, but one other note, and moving into the reason perspective, but note how reasonable these theologians are. It's not like, oh, there's credulous Christian medieval theologians, they'll believe anything. They're right. specifically denying that this is possible, says if anything like this happens, it's got to be some kind of illusion. Okay. So moving into the reason perspective, the first, you know, of the theories uh, to be considered is that it's just all nonsense. It's all rumors and legends that have no basis in reality. Now, to validate this, we'll need to look through the possible explanations and see whether any of them are plausible explanations for uh, some werewolf reports. There are a bunch of proposed explanations, and my sense is that some of them are plausible sources for at least some werewolf reports. So I don't think we can dismiss the whole thing as baseless rumors. I think it is rumors, but they have a basis. All right. So what are plausible bases for werewolf reports? 
The first are cultural practices that we already know about. Uh, we know that some warriors in the ancient world dressed up in wolf skins to intimidate their opponents and to magically take on wolf-like abilities. Also, some groups had wolves as their totem animals, and so they would have wolf-based rituals to derive magic powers from them. Both of these are plausible bases for some accounts of werewolves, since men were dressing up as and emulating and worshipping wolves. And if the rituals involve taking psychoactive plants, that could further produce werewolf reports. I mean, remember how Virgil's Moerus used plants and potions to turn into a wolf. Imagine some wolf-worshipping tribe getting drunk on alcohol or high on a plant or a combination of plants, you know, maybe mushrooms or ergot fungi, and then hallucinating about being one with wolves and later telling other people they'd transformed themselves into wolves. Just recently, a story appeared in the press where scientists are proposing that Viking berserkers, those were the guys who dressed up in bearskins and went nuts in battle, that they used a hallucinogenic herbal concoction to increase their aggression and decrease their sensitivity to pain during battle. According to the Daily Mail, Now scientists believe the secret behind their fearless rampages were mind-bending hallucinogens. Known as stinking henbane, which is otherwise poisonous, the plant caused the warriors to strip naked for battle and launch into a frenzied attack. It would have made the infamous warriors unable to feel as much pain as well as becoming unpredictable and highly aggressive and causing them to lose touch with reality, according to researchers. Karsten Fator, an ethnobotanist at the University of Ljubljana in Slovenia, said the Vikings could have made tea from the potent herb or drunk it with alcohol. He told the Times, They could have made tea from it, they could have infused it into alcohol, they could have made an ointment of the plant in animal fat and rubbed it on their skin. It would have reduced their sensation of pain and made them wild, unpredictable, and highly aggressive. There may also have been dissociative effects, such as losing touch with reality. This might have allowed them to kill indiscriminately without moral qualms. Previous theories attributed to the Vikings' terrifying fighting abilities were said to be large quantities of alcohol, insanity, or psychedelic mushrooms. Now, this theory is about the berserkers or the bear shirt guys, but it also could apply to the Ulfhednar, the wolf-coated men that King Harald uh, I of Norway had. In fact, some kind of folk process like this is probable because we see a parallel phenomenon happening in other parts of the world. Wikipedia notes, Until the 20th century, wolf attacks on humans were an occasional but still widespread feature of life in Europe. Some scholars have suggested that it was inevitable that wolves, being the most feared predators in Europe, were projected into the folklore of evil shapeshifters. This is said to be corroborated by the fact that areas devoid of wolves typically use different kinds of predators to fill the niche. Were hyenas in Africa, were tigers in India, as well as were pumas and were jaguars in southern South America. So this is a phenomenon with parallels all over the place based on what the local apex predators are. And we would expect the same thing to be happening in Europe. So those practices were based in the culture of particular groups. What about behaviors of individuals that could give rise to reports of werewolves? You'll remember how there were rumors about the 11th century Belarusian Prince Vesislav, who was supposed to rule as a man during the day, but become a wolf at night. Lots of high up people would get up to shenanigans at night. You know, they would abuse their subjects, including women. And this could be seen as like the predatory behavior of wolves. And such men might be described metaphorically as wolves. In fact, in the early mid 20th century, you would often have guys who were on the make for women described as, oh, he's a wolf. The idea of an outwardly respectable ruler displaying wolf-like behavior at night could then be become the basis of a werewolf report. It's like, oh, you know, the prince, oh, he's such a wolf at night. Also, since wolf packs at times killed humans and even ate human flesh, you could easily imagine how serial killers and cannibals 
could be reported as werewolves. In fact, when we were covering the werewolf lore earlier, we noted how there were legal cases in 16th century France where people were accused of being werewolves, but when their cases were examined, the courts found evidence of murder and cannibalism, but not transformation into a wolf. Also, there was a German farmer named Peter Stump who was accused of murdering 18 people and committing witchcraft, cannibalism, and werewolvery. He was known as the Werewolf of Bedburg, and he was executed for his crimes in 1589. He was probably just a serial killer and a cannibal, who maybe did some shady rituals, but this led to him being considered a werewolf. What about mental conditions that could lead to reports of werewolves? People go off their nut for all kinds of reasons, and in all kinds of ways. Once the werewolf legend got established in an area, any mental disorder that led to aggressive behavior, abandonment of human society, a disordered, hairy appearance, or other behaviors that could be perceived as wolf-like would have served as, or could have served as, the basis for a werewolf report. And the werewolf legend could even feed in to the delusions of mentally ill people. In fact, there is a mental condition known as clinical lycanthropy, where a person becomes convinced that he is or has transformed into a wolf or another animal. Obviously, if a person in the past developed clinical lycanthropy and started claiming to others that they were a werewolf or that they had transformed into a wolf in the past, that could generate werewolf reports. What kind of physical conditions could lead to reports of werewolves? One that has often been cited is a condition called hypertrichosis. This is a medical condition that causes hair to grow all over your body, including your face. So not just a man with a beard, but all over the face, the forehead, the cheeks, around the eyes, everywhere, the nose. People who have this condition do look like werewolves. For example, in the 1500s, there was a man from Spain named Peter Gonsalves, and if you look at paintings made of him during his lifetime, he really does look like a werewolf. He was called the Man of the Woods and became famous in the royal courts of Europe. He also went on to marry a woman named Catherine, with whom he had seven children, who also had hypertrichosis. So it's even been proposed he's the basis, that his romance with Catherine is the basis of the story for Beauty and the Beast. Another condition that has been proposed to explain some werewolf reports is porphyria. In 1965, a researcher named L. Illis wrote a paper on porphyria and the, and the etiology of werewolves. After surveying historical reports, Illis wrote, It is difficult to build up a picture of a werewolf, but the most consistent one would be of a man, or occasionally a woman or child, who wanders about at night. The skin is pale with a yellowish or greenish tint with numerous excoriations and with a red mouth. The eyes are unsteady. Occasionally, werewolves are described as being hairy. They show, to say the least, a disordered behavior. Their distribution is virtually worldwide, but with particular pockets of strong belief in their existence, such as South Germany. They date back at least to Greek times. Illis then compared this picture of a werewolf to the symptoms of porphyria. 1. Severe photosensitivity in which a vesicular erythema is produced by the action of light. This may be especially noticeable during the summer or in a mountainous region. 2. The urine is often reddish-brown as a result of the presence of large quantities of porphyrins. 3. There is a tendency for the skin lesions to ulcerate, and these ulcers may attack cartilage and bone. After a period of years, structures such as nose, ears, eyelids, and fingers undergo progressive mutilation. 4. On the photosensitive areas by hypertrichosis and pigmentation may develop. 5. The teeth may be red or reddish-brown due to the deposition of porphyrins. So, a tendency to go out at night due to being sensitive to sunlight, weird-looking skin, sometimes with hypertrichosis or hair all over it, and reddish teeth. Also, Illis notes that there are nervous disorders associated with some forms of porphyria that include mental disorders ranging from mild hysteria to manic depressive psychoses and delirium. 
And Illis notes that since there is a genetic component to the disease, it crops up in particular areas, including Sweden and in Switzerland, in certain districts and especially among certain valleys, which might explain why werewolf belief is stronger in some areas than others. Illis concludes, The red teeth, the passage of red urine, the nocturnal wanderings, the mutilation of face and hands, the deranged behavior... What could these suggest to a primitive, fear-ridden, and relatively isolated community? Illis then provides a picture of a photo of a porphyria patient who does look like a werewolf. Finally, there is another physical condition we should consider. Back in episode 59, we discussed mind control parasites, that is, parasites that affect mental functioning. There was one parasite I didn't talk about then because I was saving it for now. This parasite is a virus, and you can get it by being scratched or bitten by a wolf, a dog, or a bat. Remember the connection between werewolves and vampires we mentioned earlier? Well, this virus causes fever and headaches, then it starts to inflame your brain, and you may have anxiety, insomnia, confusion, agitation, paranoia, terror, and hallucinations. It also ramps up your desire for physical intimacy with other human beings, which is part of how it tries to spread. Here is what Kathleen McAuliffe says in her book, This Is Your Brain on Parasites. For most people, the first symptom is a flu-like malaise, an indication that the infection has reached the brain. In short course, the virus typically invades the limbic system a neural center that controls such fundamental drives as aggression, sex, hunger, and thirst. This is when victims may experience momentous sexual stirrings. As the virus madly replicates, causing circuits to fire erratically, light, noise, a scent, or the slightest touch, even a breeze, can trigger profound agitation. This phenomenon, called hyperesthesia, may have a purpose in common hosts like dogs, raccoons, bats, and foxes. An excitable animal is easily provoked to snap its jaws. The virus also paralyzes muscles in the throat. When people cry out in pain, they emit hoarse choking sounds, sometimes likened to a bark. As swallowing becomes more difficult, saliva rich in the infectious agent builds up in the mouth and becomes frothy, spilling over the lips in long threads of drool. So this virus causes humans to sound like they bark, froth at the mouth like a mad dog, lash out at others, and be unusually active at night due to insomnia. We've known about this disease, though obviously not the virus that causes it, since ancient times. In the ancient world, it was called hydrophobia, because it makes people and animals that get it afraid of water. Today we call it by another name, rabies. In earlier times, before anyone knew about viruses or how they spread, people no doubt saw the disease as a contagious madness. A savage beast bites you, and through the wound, its spirit enters your body. Thus possessed, you too become a wild animal. You foam at the mouth, rage at the world, and may even in your delirium bite. You bark like a dog and displayed uncontrolled carnality. Violent sex, blood and gore, an evil that spreads and has a life of its own. If that profile sounds familiar, it's because rabies almost certainly provides the foundation for vampire myths. In many of these legends, especially versions originating in Eastern Europe, in the first half of the 18th century, vampires are people, including sometimes the deceased, who rise at night and often taking their, the form of a dog or wolf, violate their neighbors, gorging on their flesh, sucking their blood or raping them among other heinous acts. Actually, these were not just stories to people living at that time. They were believed to be true, and anyone accused of having such savage powers could be hanged or burned at the stake. Count Dracula, penned into existence by Bram Stoker in 1897, built on these ancient accounts, except that his villain famously morphs into a bat. It is surely no accident that these supernatural forms possessed the viciousness of rabid animals and wore the mantle of rabies' most common hosts. So it's quite possible that rabies may be behind some of the reports of werewolves and vampires and of the connection between werewolves and vampires in Eastern Europe. Now, I should point out that there are criticisms of these proposals. Uh, in particular, there have been challenges to the rabies hypothesis on the grounds that the details 
in historical werewolf accounts are different than modern ones. The idea of turning into a werewolf because you get bitten by one is something that crops up frequently in recent werewolf stories. But you'll notice we didn't hear that in the ancient ones we quoted earlier. The, still, you know, the idea of a bite turning you into one is just one element of the picture. And it's not even the most likely element to get picked up in the folklore because rabies has a really long incubation period in humans. It doesn't travel through the blood. It travels through the nerves. So it takes a long time to get to the brain. And people might not realize there was a connection between the bite and the disease. But there are other points in common. The animalistic behavior, the inability to speak, the foaming at the mouth. And remember when earlier we quoted Ovid's description of Lycaon, who says he howled in his vain attempts to speak? And although we quoted from a translation that said Lycaon raved, other translations have described him as having jaws be spluttered with foam. In fact, in the Latin original, I mean, I checked the Latin original, and the word Ovid uses is actually rabies. The word for rabies is the same in Latin as it is in English, and it was recognized as, as a condition that dogs would get. So I don't think we can count rabies out of the picture. Remember, we're not looking for a single explanation for the reports of werewolves. All a given proposal needs to do is have been the basis of some reports. It doesn't have to explain them all. And I think rabies and porphyria can do that. So, Jimmy, what's your bottom line on werewolves? I don't think people literally turn into wolves or wolf-human hybrids, but I think there are multiple bases for the historical accounts of werewolves. Some of them, some of the bases were cultural practices like warriors dressing up in wolf skins or tribes doing wolf-related rituals, possibly involving psychoactive plant derivatives. Some were individual behaviors like noblemen who got up to no good with their subjects at night or serial killers and cannibals. Some were based on mental conditions that produced animal-like behavior, including clinical lycanthropy. And some were based on physical conditions, definitely hypertrichosis and possibly porphyria and rabies. So, Jimmy, what further resources can we offer to listeners on this subject? We'll have a link to where you can get Ian Woodward's book, The Werewolf Delusion. Also, Baringold and O'Donnell's book, Werewolves, The Definitive Guide. Kathleen McAuliffe's excellent book, This Is Your Brain on Parasites. Thomas Aquinas's book, On Evil, where he denies that demons can transform our bodies. Wikipedia's article on werewolves, also a photo of a Greek vase showing the Trojan warrior Dolan wearing a wolf skin. So you, like this is an image from the ancient world of a warrior dressing up in a wolf skin. Also, a link to that article on Viking berserkers may have been high on hallucinogenic herbal tea that increased their aggression and decreased their pain sensitivity. Also, a uh, link to Peter Stump, the werewolf of Bedburg. The medical paper, Lycanthropy, a review. Also, another medical paper abstract called Lycanthropy, Alive and Well in the 20th Century, which is about clinical lycanthropy. Hypertrichosis, the curious genetics of werewolves. And this is a webpage that has a picture of some boys with hypertrichosis. And wow, do they look like I mean, a photograph, not just a painting. Of, of some boys with hypertrichosis, and wow, do they look like werewolves. Also, we'll have Petrus Gonzalves's page on Wikipedia and the story of how he may have been the basis of Beauty and the Beast. Also, that paper by Illis on Porphyria and the etiology of werewolves. Then also links to pages on Porphyria and rabies, and a link to the Latin original of Aquinas' statement in his commentary on Peter Lombard's sentences. Very good. A lot of good resources there. So let's uh, get some mysterious feedback from listeners. Our first bit of feedback comes from a patron, Arthur B., who writes, Hey, Jimmy, big fan of the show, but I'm taken aback by your frequent use of Wikipedia as a source. Surely there are better sources out there for a professional international radio show than a website that is routinely mocked and regarded as a poor source for even the simplest of college papers? There are several reasons why I use Wikipedia. One of them is for research purposes, because even though it's not perfect and no source is perfect, 
it's one that is free and I have access to, and it at least leads me to, you know, places I can do further resource, uh, further research. You know, I'll look up books and articles that get linked and then I'll critically evaluate them just like I critically evaluate Wikipedia. Now, if StarQuest were at the break even point financially, and if we were past the break even point to where we could afford a research budget for this show, I would love to be <laughs> using other sources. But for right now, I'm paying for all of the books that I and, and stuff uh, and journal articles out of my own pocket. And so there are economic reasons why I use Wikipedia for research. Also, while it is by no means perfect, Wikipedia actually is accurate much of the time. There have been studies that have been done that compare its accuracy favorably to other published encyclopedias, the ones that have been professionally edited and published. And the the marketplace of ideas, Darwinian survival of the fittest approach that Wikipedia uses really does ensure a certain baseline of accuracy. I know that from personal experience because there are areas where I am an expert. And when I read Wikipedia's articles in on areas where I am an expert, they get it right most of the time. There will be little errors, but that's true of any other book I read on a subject I'm an expert in. So my experience is when I can check Wikipedia, they're right more often than not. And if there were a, this is another reason I use it, if there were a better general subject encyclopedia online that was free, I'd be happy to link it to other people, but I need to give the listeners links to where they can read more about the subjects we talk about. And most of the online encyclopedias like Britannica are largely hidden behind a paywall. So in providing links to the listeners, um, you know, Wikipedia is an obvious place. Also, part of what Mysterious World is all about is critical thinking. You know, that's what we do on the show. We lay out the theories and we look at the evidence and we sift through it. And that's not just something I do. I trust the reader or the listener to do the same thing. So just like I, when I read a Wikipedia page, I go through it carefully and I critically evaluate, is this right or not? You know, I, I trust the reader to do the same thing. Do your own critical thinking. Do your own research. This is just a starting point that. Don't take in what Wikipedia or any other encyclopedia says as gospel. And today's show provides an illustration of how I found Wikipedia quoting something that was wrong. They misused that quote from Thomas Aquinas, and I caught that by doing further research. But you know what? It's not just Wikipedia that uses that quote wrong. If you go on Google Books, you'll find all kinds of professionally edited and published books that misuse that quote in the same way. That's where Wikipedia got it from, was other books that were already misusing it. So just because something's professionally published, you can't put your critical thinking skills on the shelf. So, you know, those are some of the reasons why I use Wikipedia on this show. It's not as bad as people think. It is a good starting point for research, but it needs to be critically evaluated. I do that, and I trust the readers to do that, or the listeners to do that too. Very good. Thank you for that, that detailed response, Jimmy. Jeremy S. sends this feedback by email. Thanks for your great show. I listen to every episode with my nine-year-old son, Nathaniel, and it's his favorite podcast, his favorite episode being Skinwalker Ranch. Oh, After yeah. I think it's a lot of people's favorite. After you finished the Sherlock Holmes themed intro for episode 83, my son exclaimed, that was awesome. I wanted to commend you for the fair and balanced presentation of the different theories in this episode. I have a background in physics. I'm a professional geophysicist, and I've never subscribed to the dark matter theory, despite that most of the physicists I've known have done so, and many rather blindly. For the past 20 years or so, I've advocated the for the modified Newtonian dynamics, modified gravity, or M-O-N-D, M-O-G theories, and I'm still surprised that most people I talk to have never heard of these theories. Just last year, I had a conversation with a man until he became rather upset that I did not agree with the theory of dark matter. However, a lot of the people that I talk to become very intrigued when I describe the Mond-Mog theories to them. I hope that your episode helps to inform many more people that, they may, that may not have heard of the Mond-Mog theories, that there's something else to consider besides dark matter, dark matter and energy. 
And uh, that's one of the reasons I wanted to cover it, because I like to see ideas challenged and the dark matter and dark energy ideas are so commonly discussed. I want to make sure to cover alternatives to those. Caligari Marte on YouTube writes, I think this might be one of my, if not the favorite episode so far. I generally am not a fan of dark matter because of its indetectability, something that's been made up to close gaps in formulas that otherwise don't add up properly, literally a god of the gaps, and yet people consider it science. But then Jimmy mentioned this tiny little possibility, basically just as a side note. What if it is normal matter, but in other dimensions? Dark matter could be heaven and hell, angels and demons. Purgatory as an actual place, the limbo of the fathers, which would also be one solution to that frankly rather fallacious charge that God is an inefficient creator because he created such a vast universe with hardly anything in it. He didn't, if all this emptiness is filled with other worlds and creatures. I really wish a stronger case could be made for this theory because now I'm torn between still hating dark matter as a god of the gaps and newly falling in love with it as a possible argument for heaven and hell. So uh, it's it, it's insightful that Caligari Marte, you know, compares this to the so-called God of the Gaps argument, where you propose God as an explanation for something you can't otherwise account for. There are limitations, but also advantages to this type of, well, if we don't understand something, propose an explanation for it. For example, before the periodic table had been... Uh, fully worked out, there were, but after uh, Mendeleev had found the basics, uh, started formulating the basics of the modern periodic table, he could see there were holes in it. And so, for example, he predicted that one period down from aluminum, there should be an undiscovered element, which he called Eka aluminum. And it turned out eventually we found that. So sometimes you can propose there's something to fill a gap and it'll turn out to be right. Maybe that's dark matter, dark energy. Maybe it's not. Maybe it, we need to modify gravity somehow. In terms of could it be some of the realms we're familiar with from theology, like heaven or hell? Well, heaven and hell are capable of receiving a physical body in some way because that's already happened with like Jesus and Mary and maybe a few others with heaven. And it will happen with both heaven and hell with all of us after the resurrection. So it's capable of receiving physical bodies, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it involves space being extended the way our universe is and the way nearby parallel universes that might explain dark matter would have space extended. So I can't rule it out, but I also wouldn't say, oh, it, it it's likely to be that either. And then Paul Leone on Facebook writes, great episode. Wish I could offer my theory, but I don't know anything about the topic except what you went over. I love the opening. Your Time Lord name would be The Sage, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a reference to there was this, some speculation about how do I manage to research all the topics we talk about. And one speculation was that I'm secretly a Time Lord. And I said I couldn't confirm that, at least until I have a, a special, a cool Time Lord name. So <laughs> there's a proposal. I've thought about maybe letting the patrons vote on what my Time Lord name should yeah. be. But, you know, a sage does have a, a prodigious beard by by rule and definition. Frequently. <laughs> uh, Rick Angelini writes on Facebook, wow, fascinating episode, and I almost understood it. I don't mean that as a negative. Jimmy was able to lay out a thoughtful progression of the incredibly complex nature of dark matter and energy in such a way that could be understood by humans. And explaining things in a way that can be understood by humans is one of my principal goals on this planet. <laughs> and then uh, finally, Jason Thayer writes on YouTube, great homage to Sherlock Holmes. That should be the new way to start from now on. Thank you so much, Jason. I uh, We had a lot of fun doing the Sherlock Holmes opening. I was, you know, laying in bed one night awake trying to sleep because, you know, insomnia. <laughs> and I thought, Okay, the case of the missing universe, and that immediately led to the Sherlock Holmes opening. So in the morning, I got up and I wrote the script, and Dom very graciously agreed to do it. One of the, we got a lot of good feedback on that. I obviously we can't start the show that way every time, or it would get old. But we will be doing some interesting things to start the show like that in the future. I can't tell you when because it would spoil the surprise, or what <laughs> because it would spoil the surprise. But I already have the next one planned. One thing that nobody has commented about, people may have noticed it, but I haven't seen anyone comment about it, is a particular line that I wrote for Dom where 
he, I had him saying, we had a most productive January. After hunting down the infamous Priory of Zion, we disentangled several ancient mysteries, looked into baffling medical cases, and solved the assassination of a high government official in Italy. And if you go back over our January episodes, that's exactly what we did. Taking on the Priory of Zion is a reference to the Holy Blood, Holy Grail episode disentangling several ancient mysteries. That was the religion, magic, psychic science episode, all those being ancient mysteries. Looking into the baffling medical cases, that was the alien implants episode. And solving the assassination of a high government official in Italy, that was the Caligula episode. So I had all those in there as little Easter eggs. <laughs> also, I'm a big fan of Sherlock Holmes. I've read the Sherlock Holmes stories many times. And in fact, even though I wasn't expecting this, I just had an article accepted for the annual Sherlock Holmes Review, which is a very highly thought of journal that is about to come back as an annual. And so I had an article accepted for publication. I, I just made a comment on Facebook and someone said, you should write an article about that for this journal. And then the journal editor said, I'd love to have an article on that. So I wrote one. It's tentatively titled The Case of the Persian Slipper. And it deals with the fact that Sherlock Holmes would keep his pipe tobacco in the toe of a Persian slipper and how bizarre that is. And here are all of the reasons why that's so bizarre. <laughs> I remember seeing that that Facebook comment that that would be interesting. So, yeah. Jimmy, you said you, you came up with the idea while uh, suffering from insomnia one night. That is a better mm -hmm. way to deal with insomnia than to become a wolf ro roaming around yeah. at night. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Jimmy, what do we have for mysterious headlines this week? Well, I thought we'd continue our were werewolf theme because you do sometimes still get reports of werewolves today. So we'll have a link to an article, Werewolf Scene in New York State. But it's not just up north. We'll also have a link to an article, North Carolina Woman Claims Werewolf Sighting. All right. So, folks, what is your theory about werewolves? What do you think is really going on is behind all of this? We'd love to hear from you. Uh, and you can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page. You can also send us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com. Or send a tweet to at MYS underscore world with the hashtag of Mysterious Feedback. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next Friday is our April patrons episode, and the patrons have asked to hear the tale of the radioactive Boy Scout. Oh, excellent. Uh, we are a scouting family, so I'm looking forward to that one. So, folks, please remember to like this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on Facebook. Retweet us on Twitter where we're at SQPN or at MIS underscore world and share the show with everyone that you know so that we can spread the love and grow our audience. You can find links to all of Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember, help us to continue producing the podcast by visiting sqpn.com slash give and become a patron. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. Once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs>